Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Before we get uh, all the way into this, let me just tell you one quick thing about our own decision-making process, which is we planned this show about polling, uh, and then obviously we went through several days of uh, national trauma about first the pipe bomb perpetrator and then, of course, the Tree of Life uh, tragedy. And we really did discuss over the weekend, maybe, because we're pretty comfortable, particularly with our Monday show, changing plans if, uh, if circumstances dictate. But A, we discovered our colleagues at Where We Live were going to do a very good, very interesting show this morning. And also, and B, you know, there is... First of all, there's something to be said for the philosophy in times of trauma and tragedy. And there are places all over the world where, at least uh, anecdotally, this, this is the case. That you know, sometimes you just learn to sweep up the glass and set up the cafe tables and get back on with life so that the people who do these kinds of things don't rule uh, our behavior all the time. And there was a little of that in my, in my soul uh, this weekend. And also, uh, one of the things I do believe about the pipe bomb uh, alleged perpetrator and the tree of life alleged perpetrators, these are people people who ultimately departed from the world of fact. They began to believe things that were not true. Their their information environment uh, turned into, or they turned to uh, 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 an information environment that was detached from reality. Um, and so it's really important to sort of think about truth and reality. And in that sense, uh, the show that we're doing right now is, I think, right on point, uh, because this is a, a whole world of information that we navigate all the time. Uh, and we don't always navigate it as uh, brilliantly as we could. Uh, so the more you know about it, uh, the better off you are. We're going to try to clarify a bunch of things for you today. We've done this in the past. And when we do it, we usually uh, do it with Jennifer Deneen, uh, Program Director uh, the Graduate Program in Survey Research at the UConn Department of Public policy. Uh, joining us a little bit later will be Mallory Newell, uh, Public Polling Research Director for Ipsos Public Affairs. Uh, as we go along here, too, I mean, we'll welcome your questions. Um, I am convinced that I know the answers to all kinds of questions about polling. That's probably not true, uh, but Jennifer probably does. So there you go. Um, and our number is 860-275-7266. I'll say one more thing, uh, which is that we're all forecasters. All the time, you're forecasting, right? You buy a car, you're basically a forecaster. You're gathering up some information, trying to find out uh, some predictive information about the car. Is it going to be a good car? Is it going to have problems? Is it worth what you're paying for it? Uh, you do that You do that when you get married. You do that like with all kinds of stuff. You try to forecast. So there, there's forecasting, which we do all the time. Uh, and, and it's one of the reasons that we, we like uh, polls, too. I mean, as homo sapiens, we're kind of wired to want to know about the future. Uh, but polls also tell us a lot about the present. Um, and Jennifer and I, we're going to begin by talking about that. That Jennifer, I think our prejudice is to think about polls that tell us how an election is going to turn out. But first of all, that's only one of many things that polls attempt to do. And it might be the most rickety of the of the structures for polling, right? Polling can also tell us just a lot about what's going on right at the present moment. Absolutely. Election polling is one small, tiny slice of all of the polling that gets done. Um, and it's definitely the most challenging and least dependable. And and the job of polls during an election is to tell us what's going on in the election and what it looks like at a particular time. They're not actually predictive. They're informative. 
Right. So we, we should say polling goes on all the time and it has it's there's polling on everything from do you believe in climate change to do you believe in ghosts? There's uh, polling about, you know, well, do you think this tax cut that was just passed is going to help you? So these are all kinds of questions that sure. people can answer those questions. We were just talking about this in the green room before without in fact, trying to predict their own behavior, right? They're just answering a question. Right. I mean, a lot of the polling that gets done might even be about how a particular tax cut or policy change has had an impact on people to assess whether or not it's working. Right. And then beyond that, uh, all of all of that kind of polling, as is the case with all kinds of election polling, is full of what we sometimes call cross tabs. So, so these are like, okay, how does this question work? This tax cut question work if you're college educated or not, or right white if you're or low income or yeah. not, or if you have a large family or not. Absolutely. So, but for some reason or other, even though we're aware of all those polls and we're aware of polls about the approval rating of various professions, including journalism, which tends to have a very low Gallup approval rating, as do pollsters. As do pollsters. So, uh, we're but I mean, for some reason or other, the rock stars, the superstars of polls, tend to be elections, probably because it's something where we really want to know how it's going to come out. So the first question I would have is how, how good should we think polls are at telling us something like that? Not. Mm. Um, so you're right. We can't help ourselves. Mm. Even those of us who know better can help ourselves. And elections are something they're long, they're races, they're competitive. We're looking for sort of a score in the game, I think, as they progress. And polls are numbers and people tend to see numbers as being hard and fast when you know, actually, there's a lot behind them, and there's a lot of flexibility in those numbers too. And and so, you know, I think the other thing that's happened is that, uh, first of all, we have a very information-rich environment right now. If you're interested in these things, or even mildly interested in these things, you have. I mean, you know, I grew up in a time where there was sort of, you know, a newspaper and some, you know, evening news, and you can get Time Magazine <laughs> mail or something. And so, I mean, that's what I kind of knew about polls, too. Now, there's a, a sense in which the information environment changes all the time. And if you want to know more about it, you can know, know more about it. You might not know better about it, but you can know more about yeah, it all the time. Absolutely. And it comes in fast and furious. I mean, especially the week leading up to the election, it was, you know, you can refresh your browser perpetually and constantly be getting new information. And and polling has gotten quicker as we do more and more of it on the web. And so we are now getting more of it more often. So um, as we go along here, by the way, we will take your questions. We're going to leave the third and final section completely open so you can call in with questions. Um, I mean, at least we don't have – we have another agenda if you don't call in. But 860-275-7266. So one of the things that I encounter, you encounter it more, I'm sure, is when we talk about polling, when we talk about electoral polling, people say, well, they got it so wrong in 2016. They had no idea. They didn't have a handle on what was going on. So why should I pay any any attention in 2018. Uh, maybe sort of, uh, I don't know, flesh out people's understanding a little bit. Sure. I mean, I would take some issue with the um, the sentiment that polls got it completely wrong in 2016. They certainly weren't perfect and there were some issues. Nationally, the polls did pretty well. I think they predicted that Clinton would win by about three and she um, got a she was ahead in the popular vote by about two percent. Mm-hmm. So that's not that off. There were definitely some issues with statewide polls. Some of that was because of a late move movement mm-hmm. um, towards Trump. And polling, especially in the states, does not happen as frequently. It does not happen as close to Election Day. 
Um, and when you have a candidate where support is what I call soft, which is that you have a lot of people who support the candidate but maybe not enthusiastically, that firming of opinion doesn't happen until very close to the vote for those people. So that was one issue. The other issue is because of a lack of statewide polling and polling in certain districts, we have a lot of people entering the arena using sort of DIY tools um, and and they have less methodology, they have less funding, they're doing the polls quicker. And so they're producing a lower quality product, which is coming into play with the aggregators and, and you know, playing with the estimates and the confidence a little bit. Right. And if that was at all confusing to you, we're going to explain all of that in just a second. But um, so one of the things, like as I go back and I think, okay, what didn't I know? What, because I mean, I feel like I was A, a journalist reporting on this, and B, I was teaching it at Trinity. <laughs> and I said to my students the day after the election, go to the bursar's office, see if you can get your money back. I clearly don't know what I'm talking about. But um, so one of the things that I, I think about, and what's one of the reasons I'm interested in this, um, the project that uh, we'll be looking at in the second segment with uh, Ipsos, where they're trying to use social media a little bit to kind of get a different kind of handle uh, on what's happening, is I think about the thing that I think I most didn't understand, if that makes any sense. Um, and it's it's actually an idea that I had invented for myself back in 2008, uh, and I called it the Palin ceiling. Uh, and what the Palin ceiling was was the number of voters, the percentage of voters who could not, under any circumstances, be persuaded to vote for Sarah Palin. Uh, that there was some rock hard number there, um, and and that it almost didn't make any difference what happened over on the other side. They just couldn't do it. I, I used it also with Linda McMahon. I felt like there was a sort of drop dead number in, in her Senate races here in Connecticut where they just you just couldn't do it. Now, what I didn't think about, and if I, I don't know if it was there in the polls and I didn't see it or I didn't think to look at it, I think that there was a similar number for Hillary Clinton. There was some kind of ceiling where no matter what people found, certain people, no matter what they find out, found out about Donald Trump, you know, taped, you know, declarations of his sexual behavior, whatever, you know, dissing John McCain. It didn't matter. They couldn't be tipped into the Clinton column. I feel like, you know, there's often a missing piece of information. It might be there in the polls, but the polls, because they're vast and have cross tabs and stuff like that, sometimes we just miss the thing that we should have been thinking about. I think, yeah. So I think that I agree. There are two things I see coming into play here. One, I agree with that view of the ceiling and I use similar ones and also I think part there so there's two things one election polls are trying to figure out who votes mm -hmm. and so unlike other polling we actually don't know who the population is that we are trying to assess or predict and we are using questions about interest in the election and knowledge and candidate support to figure out who our pool of voters are and that pool changes from election to election. Mm -hmm. So the ceiling for Linda McMahon and the ceiling for Hillary Clinton and the ceiling for Sarah Palin, there were ceilings. Mm -hmm. But what one election tells us doesn't necessarily show us where the ceiling is in the future. Oh, yeah. And first of all, you're talking about completely different voter bases. Right. We're talking about McMahon versus Clinton. Right. But the first thing, as you're saying, the first thing you got to do is figure out well, who the hell actually is going to show up on that particular day and cast any vote at all. Right. So the, so that is the big challenge and what makes pre-election polling so hard. The other thing I think comes into play and certainly does is we underestimate the strength of partisanship. Mm -hmm. And academically, we know that. Political scientists who study party registration and party identification know that it is the single biggest predictor of vote. Mm -hmm. And I think that there was a narrative going on where people could not get to the point where they could accept that things like taped behaviors mm -hmm. of exploits would not 
would not trump party identification. So to speak. So to speak. And so I think that was another part of right. our challenge there. Um, I, it's, it is interesting. What, sometimes what you pick up anecdotally, you, you can at least put it side by side with the data you're looking at and say, oh, yeah, I wonder if the fact that you know, 10 people in a bar said that they didn't care. Nothing could ever get them to vote for Hillary Clinton. <laughs> I wonder if that's, you know, important in terms of that. You know, as long as you're talking about um, party affiliation, I was going to bring this up later, but it's something that I've been thinking a lot about recently. So we live in Connecticut. And in Connecticut, since 1998, at least, um, unaffiliated voters have been a larger number than voters from either a major party. Uh, I think around 98, they got up over 40 percent, and I think they've never gone below that. So, and But I think the mistake we sometimes make in political journalism is thinking of them as some kind of unit, which they're not. So, And Pew is the only group I know that's looked at lean. So you know, within that 800,000 or 900,000 person group, there's all kinds of things. There's some people who almost always vote with the Democrats, people who almost almost always vote with the Republicans. You know, it seems to me that that's one thing that we could maybe learn to be a little bit more subtle about is that question of lean among unaffiliated. Absolutely. So Connecticut has it's about 41 percent mm. as of the 2017 numbers of unaffiliated voters. Nationally, we have about 28 percent identifying mm. as independent. And we do talk about those people as they truly don't are neutral. Mm. Um, and many of them are not. Many of them do behave more like partisans. They just don't choose to identify with that. What we're seeing nationally, which I think is really interesting, is that there's not clear consensus among voters who identify themselves as independent on what the most important issues are. Mm -hmm. So Democrats are talking a lot about health care. Yeah. Republicans are talking a lot about the economy and immigration nationally. I've looked at a couple of different polls. Independents or voters who call themselves independents are split on those issues. Um, as long as we're on this, um, one of the things that we're trying to do right now under quite a bit of pressure in the world of political journalism in Connecticut is to figure out what a candidacy like Oz Griebel's means. Uh, and there, I should say there's a Quinnipiac poll in the field right now. We should have some new numbers um, probably Wednesday, something like that. They won't tell us, but uh, something like that. Um, and um, it's a hard thing. It's a tough thing to do. I mean, one nice thing about we sh we should also say this. We're going to get into a little bit of geekiness, but for me, an individual poll is almost useless. A poll where I can draw a trend line from a two polls using the exact same methodology, so a Q poll of likely voters to a Q poll of likely voters. I'm much more interested in that, so Absolutely. I can see a trend. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and one of the things I will often counsel people is not to take a single data point mm -hmm. for being worth too much information. You know, it's you want to see the trend line. You want to see the trend line from the same organization, and you also want to be able to benchmark that information among what other organizations are doing. Mm -hmm. In a state like Connecticut, that's challenging because there's so little polling going on. Yeah. Yeah. And so with something like the, the Griebel candidacy, I mean, the question is, does he pull from one side more, more from the other? And we can, we can look at that. I don't know, as somebody who does this uh, in a much more scientific mm -hmm. way than I do, I, is there a way to get a handle on that? Well, there is a way to get a handle on that. I haven't seen Quinnipiac ask, and I don't know if they will, who else a voter might support right. if Griebel wasn't in yeah. the race. I don't I mean, think they're asking that question. I didn't see it on the last poll, yeah. and so I don't know if it's on this one. Um, and so you could look at that. You can also look at how how certain they are. What I did see in the last poll was two-thirds of the Griebel voters mm -hmm. were unsure, said yeah. they might change their mind. Yeah. And so if he, in the last poll, was polling at about 11%, I mm -hmm. think, 
only about 30% of that was really strong and sure. So I don't know. I know he did pick up the current endorsement. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much that will change, but those are the sorts of indicators that I would look for. Um, You know, you talked about uh, a lot of people getting into the game. Not all polls are created equal. They don't have the same quality. Um, This is something you and I have talked about in the past, and I think I emailed you my thing about how a pool is like a chicken. That you know, yeah. like Ultimately, you want to ask a lot of questions about that chicken. Right. Is it farm-raised? Does it have any antibiotics? Is it, you know, and it's the same thing about a pole. Uh, just saying pole is like saying chicken. It doesn't really tell you that much. Um, so one thing that uh, that happens in some places, for example, at 538, they now have a poll rating system. You can go and you can look at it. It tells you what their uh, what their lean is. In other words, if, it, if they make a mistake, they'll probably make it this way. They'll, right. They tell you how accurate this poll is. They assign it a letter grade. I mean, that's sort of a lot of work for the average person to go through. Are there things that you can just tell the average person, well, at least look for this, look for these things? There are, but that is getting harder and harder. I used to be able to give you five quick yeah. um, quick points. I mean, obviously, we always look at the organization, who does the poll, who's paying for it, and do they have an out, a stake in the outcome, right? Is it a candidate or an organization that might have some interest in putting out numbers other than just a really accurate prediction? Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to look at the sample size and the margin of error. Polls get reported as a single estimate. And yeah. by that, I mean a single percentage, 49 percent, mm-hmm. let's say. But really what they are is a range. Mm-hmm. And that's where we, we hear a lot of talk and we see the margin of error. That means that if a poll has a margin of error, and this is you pr- I, I'm getting geeky for you. So yeah. um, if a poll has a margin of error of plus or minus 3% and they predict that a candidate is going to get 49% of the vote, mm. that really means that it's going to be somewhere between 46% mm-hmm. and 52%. Right. And so it's not as precise an estimate as it might see. So you want to make sure that it's not a really small sample size. Only right. a couple hundred. And then you're a, looking a, at... A thousand is often, like uh, at yes. least in national polls, I see that as like a target number for yes. a lot of people. In national polls between, I'd say, 900 and 1,200 mm. is pretty much the standard. Statewide, you're, you're likely to see in a state like Connecticut, mm. five to 600 mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, and you're also looking to see how transparent a pollster is about their methodology. Did yeah. they tell you what their sample was? Did mm-hmm. they tell you how they contacted their voter by web? The less information there is about how they did their study, the more suspect I usually am. Right. Um, Likely voter screen, important to you? Yes. And likely voter screen is important at different times. Mm. So if we backed up three months ago, Mm. you wouldn't be talking about likely voters because three months, especially in a midterm election, Mm. nobody's really thought about it a lot. You'd be looking at general population or registered voters. But But you can still ask them predictive questions. Did they vote in the last election? Do they know? Do they know where their polling place is? Do they know, you know, stuff like that? And that really changes um, organization to organization. It can be seven or eight questions. Mm. It can be three questions. Right. Are they interested in the race? Do they plan on vi- voting? And do they know who they're going to vote for? Mm. The tighter the likely voter screen, the more problematic it can be sometimes, mm. especially in a race like this one mm. where they're anticipating you know, the Taylor Swift effect, right? Mm. Young people are supposedly expected to turn out at a higher rate than they have in previous midterms. Right. So um, we should say one more thing. When you're talking about the margin for error, I have to bring up one of my current pet peeves about my own profession. Um, and then we'll grab a break. We'll uh, come back with more uh, Jennifer, and uh, we're going to add Ipsos to the conversation. So 
<laughs> as Jennifer knows, I, I feel as though journalists are kind of bad at this. Uh, and, and many journalists just don't understand polling or they just don't want to understand polling. And so, I mean, they make really, you know, obvious, easy to fix errors. And the latest one that I'm noticing a lot of people doing is the phrase dead heat. Uh, so, I mean, if Ned Lamont is up uh, 3% uh, in a poll that, and this is a real example too, he's, if he's up 3 and something percent in a poll that has a 4 and something percent margin for error. I've seen two, both the Hartford Current and the Hearst Papers have said, so it's a dead heat. Well, it's not a dead heat. I mean, it might be a dead heat, it, it, but that's that's one end of the range. You're assuming that the, the reversion goes in a certain direction. I mean, Ned, Ned Lamont could be 7 or 8 percent up, you know, I mean, but they just sort of pick the thing that makes a headline or something. Well, right. So it's not really a tie at that mm. point because the margin of error applies to each candidate. So right. Ned Lamont could be up um, seven points. Seven points. Yeah. And so, yes, there is um, not necessarily a statistical tie. We just can't make a call based on the information we have. Right. Now, I, I almost asked you this in the green room. I'm going to ask you now because I thought about today and I realized I don't. I think I know the answer to this, but maybe I don't. When we talk about when we're talking about a margin for error, so um, so let's say that um, that Deneen is ahead of McEnroe uh, by four points, and there's a margin of error of five points. Um, is is every point is every place? So we, then we imagine a continuum, and the continuum is you might be ahead of me by nine points, or you might, might be, be behind, behind me by one point. Is every point on that continuum from negative one to nine of equal probability? I mean, if there's a margin for error, there isn't like, the yes. middle isn't worth more than the the extremes, right? No, no. Yeah. It's we're really predicting uh, what we call it an interval. So right. that the real value is somewhere in that six point swing. Yeah. And we have picked the midpoint to report. All right. That was a really geeky question, but I, I suddenly wanted to know the answer. Okay. So we're going to take a break, break and uh, we're going to we're, we're going to, there's some really interesting new things that are being tried this time. We're going to talk to somebody from Ipsos, who's that's one of the places where they're trying them. We're also we'll also talk a little bit about what Upshot is doing. Upshot kind of lives inside the New York Times uh, and is doing an experiment in transparency that the likes of which I think has not been seen, been seen before in polling. So more of Jennifer Deneen and you'll meet Mallory Newell. Dear old Union League, they love so well. Stand the pollsters all assembled with their spirits not so high, and the music of their weeping casts a spell. Yes, the music of their weeping or the polls which misfire. All right, we are back. Now, we're going to tell you about some new things going on in polling, and then if you have some questions, particularly here in this complicated midterm season, uh, we'll uh, open the phones to you for that. Our number, by the way, 860-275-7266. Uh, I'm here with Jennifer Deneen, Program Director for the Graduate Program in Survey Research at UConn Department of Public Policy. Also joining us by phone now is Mallory Newell, Public Polling uh, – but there's so many P's in these introductions – Public Polling Research Director uh, of Ipsos Public Affairs. Uh, Mallory Newell, welcome to our conversation. Thanks so much. Glad so, to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. So um, Ipsos is uh, trying something new uh, in, in a partnership. Uh, it's called uh, Atlas. Tell us about Atlas. Yes, that's right. So uh, what Ipsos has done is we've partnered with the University of Virginia Center for Politics to create a website called The Political Atlas. And basically, it's a one-stop shop for looking at uh, contested races across the country at all levels, House, the Senate, and gubernatorial races. 
So what we've done here with the political atlas is um, we've taken a sort of triangulated approach to data analysis. And what I mean by that is here in this website, we have a number of different indicators from polling data to the UVA expert race rankings, their crystal ball rankings, they're called, as well as uh, social media analytics. And we've brought all of these together um, so that people can explore the site, it's very interactive, and sort of reach their own conclusions about what's going to happen next week. All right. So the, the term social media a- analytics is one that we probably wouldn't have even been using in a conversation about polling uh, even just a few years ago. So explain what you mean by that. Sure. And, and I think you're totally right. This is, this is something that's, that's pretty new when it comes to how you analyze political races. So what we've done is we've looked at conversations happening across social media and uh, categorized them into politically important issues. So one of the things that we do on the political atlas when it comes to social media is we look at the main issues that people are talking about on social media across a number of different platforms. Uh, so it's everything from President Trump to the Supreme Court, healthcare, the economy, things like that. Um, but we're also using social media to track the sentiment about candidates in a specific race. So we measure, for example, um, in the governor's race in Connecticut, the um, percentage of conversations that are favorable toward Ned Lamont, for example. Right. Uh, and believe me, I've been uh, looking at that right now. I'm going to have Jennifer. Uh, I'm sure she's got some questions uh, that she would like to ask you. So do you, do you have some things that you want to know or comment about or or – I mean, as she's thinking about that, let me just ask you one. So when you say, I mean, it seems to me to measure the tone of a conversation, which is so different from asking set questions from people that you're sampling. In other words, you don't have a chance to go on on Reddit and ask them an explicitly worded question about why they're calling Ned Lamont a jerk or something like that. Um, so so how do you, how do you measure that thing just as a positive versus a negative? Uh, yes, it's basically measuring sentiments of the conversation. Uh, and in terms of the key issues, we measure, um, you know, the amount of conversation that's about that given issue. But I think what's more important is that the reason behind why we're doing this, right? Mm-hmm. So this is something that came out of basically a lesson learned from, from 2016, which is something that we talk about a lot as, as pollsters. Um, and I think... The political atlas was sort of born out of this idea that there's, there's no single approach or single factor um, for predicting an election. Um, you know, 2016, the conversation was focused on just a single method of forecasting, and that was relying heavily on polling and um, public opinion models, right? Um, so what the Atlas does is it was sort of created out of this desire for bringing multiple independent indicators, social media being one of them, together uh, so people can sort of, again, reach their own conclusions and look at all of these sources in one spot. Right. I, this is what I call, by the way, in my own little uh, eccentric universe, the Noelke effect. So there's this guy named John Noelke here in Connecticut. And what he does is he, like during 2016, every person he encountered, no matter what the environment, standing in line at the bakery, somebody who came to fix his furnace, whatever, he just said to them, what do you think about this election? And then he wrote down what they said. And he sent me emails that were compilations of these things. He sent me, I think, 33 
three emails that had in them, you know, five to seven conversations each time or something. Uh, and when I went back and I looked at that, I thought, if I just read all of John Noelke's emails really carefully and then crunched it as like a 15% factor into what I do about this election, I would have done a lot better. I would have understood better what's going on. But Jennifer, it seems to me the risk here, I mean, it does feel as though, I mean, you can't control sample size very well and things like that. I mean, what, what as a data scientist, what concerns would you have? Well, I don't know if I have... I guess where I'm particularly interested, one of the great things I think about what's happening at the political atlas is that you're polling in places that have not seen polling in right. their congressional races before. So I guess I'm interested in what made you decide to do this rather than just do the contested races that, you know, the the very close races that everybody else is doing? And are there challenges as a pollster to doing that? Sure. That's a great question. Um so Ipsos has a partnership with Reuters where we are constantly polling nationwide um, daily, daily tracking on just the, the pulse of, of the country and where people are at. And from there, that feeds into our election prediction model that we use on the political atlas to look at some of these different places and, and smaller geographies. Um, I think, too, the, one of the reasons why it's important to not just look at so-called contested races, is because that list is constantly changing and constantly growing. I think personally one of the things that's most interesting about the 2018 midterms is that there are some House races that are on the map as toss-up districts for the first time ever, right? And we're also seeing a ton of first-time candidates coming into the mix and, you know, raising a huge amount of money, um, something that you can also find on the Political Atlas, actually, is fundraising data. So I think one of the reasons why it's best to look at everything altogether rather than limiting to a specific geography is because, you know, the map is changing. And part of this election is, you know, we saw a lot of um, uncertainty coming out of the president's election in 2016. And this this age of uncertainty is is still it's no different this year, right? So I think it's really important to not limit ourselves where we're looking at, um, and to understand how people across the country are thinking, rather than in just say. 23 districts or, you know, 12 states. So, Mallory, I had one more question about the social media stuff. because So I was on the Atlas site today, and it is great. And Jennifer was saying before we went on the air, there's just a lot of races where there's almost no polling, you know, across the country. There are these, you know, high marquee races. And, then the, and so it is great to get that information. It seemed as though the social media stuff, I, I w- would go on a drop-down menu and click on social media, and then I, w- I would get that particular take. Is the social Social media also crunched into any total, total, any overall total, or is it always just sort of there only as the social media piece? It's there only as its social media piece, and the reason for that, like I mentioned before, is that we want to have these three independent indicators: so our polling estimates, social media, and then UVA's rate, ratings separate from each other. So you can say if you go to the Atlas and you look at the Connecticut governor's race, you have three indicators at the top, right, telling you here's what, according to the polling, the race looks like. According to UVA, here's what it looks like. And finally, according to social media, here's what it says. 
And the reason for that is when we have these three independent indicators, we want to leave them separately but present all of them together because one of the things that I think we've really learned coming out of 2016 is the need for greater transparency when it comes to polling. And you really need to present all of your indicators to the public to really accurately convey the full picture of what we're seeing. I would totally agree with that, Mallory, although I would encourage Ipsos to translate its how to calculate Bayesian credibility intervals uh, <laughs> segments uh, on those Reuters polls into uh, English that the average person can understand. Um, but it's good that you do that anyway. Uh, yeah, well, you can ask a question. I do have one more question. Yeah. So I was looking at the Connecticut races, and I noticed you know, that all of the different indicators point in the same direction, which is something that I like to look at. Do all of the different ways we can look at a, an election or a race look the same. But mm -hmm. I did notice that the social ratings were slightly weaker, slightly less um, strong in the point towards the Democratic wins at the congressional levels than, let's say, the polling. Is there an overall trend nationally on how social in your polling is tracking? Does that vary a lot state to state? It's a great question. And people, just to make sure people understood it. So we're asking, uh, Ipsos is doing this unusual thing where they're really looking at social media, trying to quantify what's coming out of social media. So Jennifer's asking, well, so is, does it map pretty closely or does it track pretty closely with the way conventional polling or does it seem to have a different kind of lean? What, what's the answer, Mallory? It, social media doesn't really lean one way or the other. I think that's one of the more interesting things about it because it's one of the few indicators that's really telling us um, what the conversations are like on the ground. Um, and so what we see with our social media is that there are more races nationwide that fall into that middle toss-up category, which I think speaks to the fact that, that the map and the number of toss-ups that you know, we have right now for the midterms is larger than it's ever been. Right. I just realized that I reworded Jennifer's question, but I didn't do any better than she did at wording it. That was really bad mansplaining. I would like to uh, withdraw that. Um, all right. Well, listen, this stuff is really fascinating, and we really encourage people to go uh, over to what uh, the, this Atlas project between uh, UVA and Ipsos. Uh, it's been really, really interesting to look at. And if you like playing around with this stuff and messing around with uh, drop-down menus and stuff like that, if you're that kind of person, uh, you're going to have a really good time there. Thanks very much to Mallory Newell, a public polling research director for Ipsos Public Affairs. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. When we come back, Jennifer and I are going to talk about something else that The Upshot's doing. Mallory mentioned transparency. The Upshot, which lives at The New York Times, is doing uh, uh, some really unusually transparent stuff about how polling works. All right. Usually, Wolfie does the credits here, but I forgot, I forgot to write the script. We both forgot about it. So I'm excited to say that Scott Breedy, who is the regular producer of The Wheelhouse, is producing his first Colin McEnroe show episode ever today. He's going to be doing that more, as well as doing uh, episodes occasionally of Where We Live. Uh, so congratulations to Scott. Uh, Jennifer and I are trying hard not to screw up your first episode. Uh, and uh, Betsy so Kaplan. Now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Betsy Kaplan, who's senior producer of The Colin McEnroe show, is on the phones now. You've got a chance to talk to 
Betsy Kaplan, uh, if you call 860-275-7266. She doesn't suffer fools gladly, but I'm sure she'll enjoy your question. If you want to ask a question about polls, if there's something you'd like to have Jennifer Deneen clear up for you in the world of uh, opinion research, data science, 860-275-7266. And then you also get a brush with greatness. You get to talk to Betsy Kaplan. Uh, Kion Wolf obviously is uh, helping out all that great music. People ask me, where does the music come from? Uh, Kion Wolf picks out, I'd say, 92% of the music that we use uh, in and out of segments. Uh, Does lots of other magical things instead. Who else do I need to thank? That's about it. The part of Bill Curry was played by Nate Silver. Uh, Tomorrow on the show, I've already... Oh, it's the show about explorers. We're doing the show about explorers. And I want to mention Wednesday. So there's a group of people who don't turn up in opinion research. They don't turn up in a lot of places. Uh, They are non-traditional political candidates. We sometimes call them fringe candidates. They don't always like that. But anyway, we try to invite them in here because they don't get, and particularly the people who are running as like writing, registered writing candidates and stuff like that. I mean, nobody ever covers them. So we're we're inviting them uh, in, uh, well, not all of them. There's a lot of them, but we'll be talking to quite a few of them on Wednesday as we typically do. All right. Get to know your fringe candidates. All right. We're back with Jennifer Deneen. I want to begin I said the thing about the upshot. So the upshot's doing kind of two things, maybe more than two things. But let's start with the first one. They're showing you a poll, not as a finished product, but as it's building up to being a finished product, right? Absolutely. They're calling it live polling. So Mm. they're showing you how many phone calls they're making and how many completes they get with different segments of the population and what the percentages look like as the survey is in process. Right. And so you can also, you can look at it uh, on the site, each poll. So you can go to some Pennsylvania race or New York race that you're interested in. And what you see is this kind of steep error curve at the beginning. So you see these kind of outlying data points that are just way too high or way too low. And then it starts to revert to the mean. It starts to go more towards the middle. So if you're like us, that's kind of exciting to look at. I don't know that it's really all that exciting. But for me, I'm like, wow, that's really cool. You can actually see, you know, them getting t- towards reality there. Yes. You can see the math in progress. I think so that's interesting. And I applaud the upshot for trying to increase the transparency of polling and demystify it for people. I think in an effort to in um, increase public trust and confidence again. Mm-hmm. It's also a little bit, for those of us who poll, I, I find it a little bit nerve-wracking because you may look at this and get excited and know that these numbers are going to change and that the error margin is going to decrease. And But sometimes we're seeing these partial numbers reported out from right. their site. So we're seeing numbers based on 150, 200 interviews making their way into the narrative of what polling is like on this election. Well, there's two very dangerous groups uh, to put this information in the hands of. I think the most dangerous group are people who are affiliated with candidates because they're going to go, oh, we're 17 points up. Well, now you're 17 points right. up. It's the it's one half of day one of right. a four-day poll or something. You have a 20-point margin of error. You're no points up. Right. You're no points up. And then I think journalists, as we said, they don't always understand polling. So they, they look at something and go, well, wow, look at this. You know, and then it's they 200 tweet. 200 people. Yeah. So, but it's still, I mean, if you could sort of get past that, and don't do that, by the way. Just don't do that. You're wrecking it. Um, So the other thing that I'm fascinated by is, and maybe other people have done this, but in plain English, and I think that's really important too, the upshot is explaining how they calculate turnout and and what the different possible ways they could uh, correct for uh, who's actually going to turn out and vote. That was the original question you brought up, Jennifer, and also whether they're oversampling a kind of person who's not going to vote. Right. So that that is really interesting. And so they are showing what 
the election predictions look like or the picture of the race, depending on how you want to frame it, under different scenarios. Mm -hmm. And so we don't know who's going to turn out. And so we make some assumptions about people's past behavior and the history of voting in that district. And they show you what the data looks like under those different assumptions. They also show you what it looks like under different assumptions for what's called weighting. Mm -hmm. And weighting is some statistical adjusting we do to the sample after we've collected data to make up for the groups that don't respond. This was a really big issue in 2016 Mm -hmm. because there was such a high correlation between level of education, whether or not someone had a college degree or more, and their vote preference. And so... They're showing us what the data looks like under both of those scenarios. Right. What they'll do, actually, uh, on the upshot is they'll show you slightly different outcomes depending on, you know, if they change the, the way that they weighted. Like if they if they weighted by a different – if they didn't weight by education, for example, well, then here's how it looked if they ignored that as, as, a, as a factor. Then here's how it comes out, you know, th- that kind of thing. So – and I find – I mean it's, a, it's probably a relatively easy thing for them to do. They're just like, you know, tweaking a formula or an algorithm based on either having or not having a certain set of data. And But it's very cool. It's very interesting to look at. It gives you a little bit more. I mean, th- the problem I would say, I think is if you have eight different theories, you have no theory. Like you've, you Well, know, there's that. Yeah. I mean, and I think it is cool if you get through their top lines and see that, you know, if you look at turnout like it happened in 2014 rather than 2016, you can get a very different result of mm-hmm. your poll. And so I think that's interesting. I think if you don't understand all of the theory that's behind those different models, it can look a little bit like you're making it up. Right. So I think uh, we've got a caller here who knows you uh, and perhaps is prepared to challenge you in a very specific way. Here's uh, Fred from Stores. Hi, Fred. You're on the air. Hi. Thank you, Colin. I wanted to comment on what's happening in the World Association for Public Opinion Research, a, an international organization. The president for the next two years, Marita Carbajo, plans to have a major outreach to journalists so that there'll be seminars for journalists to report on public opinion from countries all over the world to understand how public opinion works better. I would like I would like my seminar to be held in some really fascinating European capital, if possible. <laughs> well, the, the Wayport meetings are uh, every <laughs> other year in Europe or some other international location. Uh, on the other odd years, they're here in the United States. So, uh, you want to comment on this? Yes. Yeah. Hello, Professor Turner. Um, Hi. Yes, this year the meeting is in Toronto, actually, and both WAPOR, the World Association for Public Opinion Research, and APOR, the American Association for Public Opinion Research, have as their, you know, part of their mission educating people and providing resources for journalists or the general public Mm -hmm. who's interested in understanding more about the different methodologies and the implications of those methods. I mean, I think it's a great thing because, as I've been saying all along, and I'm sure, by the way, I am not as faultless as I – I mean, it's like Daniel Kahneman. You know, I've overestimated my own abilities here. But uh, but I, I think journalists are really bad at this. You know, I think we, we really do report things but the wrong way. to be fair, mm. it has gotten so complicated. It yeah. used to te- – Two or three election cycles ago, it was very simple. You were looking for live interview or telephone polls with random digit dial samples. And now there are so many different methodologies and the speed of information is so much quicker and the space journalists have to work on is so much smaller that ironically, I'm going to make a plug that it's just gotten hard 
to be really competent in this topic. And or, media organizations no longer have um, the same sort of dedicated resources that they used to have for polls. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think there's some basic things that we can do, including just, I mean, it really is. Uh, I, I did, uh, teaching a, a political science class at Yale last year, I developed this post called How a Poll is Like a Chicken and how you could just look at a poll and at least have some kind of sense you know, what kind of methodology was used? How reliable is the poll? I mean, one of the ways that 538 ultimately evaluates polls is, I mean, if they have a lot of data points about whether they were right or wrong, uh, you know, that's one way to look at it. And I just don't think journalists do that. I have seen polls that I know don't have good methodology and aren't reliable and haven't been reliable being reported just the way a Q poll would be reported. And I don't think that's good. Let me ask you about another thing. This is sort of a, a philosophical point. It's a little bit uh, outside your, your specialty. But, you know, poll, one of the th ways that polls get used these days is to decide whether somebody should be participating in a debate. Uh, you have to hit a certain, you know, number. You have to be in double figures, whatever, to be eligible for a debate. You know, you, when you and I have talked in the past, you've talked about how a poll is a snapshot. It's a snapshot of a particular moment. And that raises questions to me about whether that's a good use of a poll to say, well, at, on October, you know, on September 22nd, right. you know, you weren't doing so well. Right. Well, and I think that's interesting. I during the Republican primary leading up to the 2016 election, Marist College mm -hmm. actually stopped doing releasing their pre-election numbers at a certain point because mm -hmm. they did not want to contribute to that conversation. Um, I don't know necessarily how we decide mm -hmm. in races where we have a lot of candidates because I don't think fundraising is necessarily fair or party endorsement. Um, but your point that what the race looks like early on is not what the race is going to look like later. And if we only give the free media or access for the public to the people who are ahead, mm -hmm. we're sort of perpetuating institutionalized candidates. Yeah. It seems to me that a poll it, uh, attempts to be a picture of how things are. It isn't necessarily intended to be a deciding point for how things should be. Uh, and also, of course, some polls aren't even polling on particular candidates' names. So. Right. I mean, it's, it's sort of the, the final insult to say, well, you didn't get a very good poll number. Well, no, nobody even asks about this person. That's why. Or and, the public doesn't know early on, and they're yeah. really just going with party labels. Mm -hmm. And um, and that definitely is going to advantage the the par the candidates for the major parties. So I've got time for one last question. And I you said something really, really interesting during the break, which I hadn't really thought about. So obviously, there was a little bit of a prejudice a few years ago with online polling, when online polling was new. Since that time, uh, we've, we've kind of discovered that online polling can be done pretty effectively. And you made a really interesting point about how hard it is these days to poll congressional races by phone. And, and I hadn't thought at all about this, but explain that. Right. So Telephone polling and using a random uh, digit dialing or randomly generated sample was always the gold standard, and in many ways it still is. But as cell phones have proliferated, and now we look at the country as about 70% cell phone only or cell phone primary household, cell phones are not tied to geographies the way landlines were. And so to poll in a congressional district is very, very expensive if you're going to use a telephone because you have to do a lot of screening. You have to screen out, you know, there are phone numbers that are Connecticut area codes for mm -hmm. people living in California or Wisconsin now. And so it really is almost impossible to do a quick and cost-effective congressional poll. Right. It seems like uh, also for ways that I have not even, for reasons that I haven't thought about at all, 
like the little thing that comes up in your screen, like my dentist in West Hartford always comes up as Stonington or something. Who knows why? Right. Some, you know. Right. They could be assigned, yeah. uh, you know, they have an office somewhere and that's where the primary line is. So, yeah. And voter registration lists don't typically have phone numbers mm-hmm. with them or don't have current numbers. So even if you were going to go with registration-based sampling, that can be a challenge as well. And I think the other prejudice that we've had for a long time is that phone is better. Phone is better. Human being is better. And, and there are a lot of reasons to have that. We've only got about a minute and a half left. But obviously, there's the so-called Bradley effect, or they're different names. But there's sometimes a sense that one human being being polled is reluctant to say a thing to another uh, person who's human being polling him, a thing that the person might be willing willing to tell an automated kind of robo call poll or an online poll. Right. And so there is a there is some evidence that people are less willing to share things that aren't socially acceptable or that they're uncomfortable with with an interviewer. And the robo polls cannot include cell phones. So mm-hmm. If you're going to look at that, yeah. I think your best bet is to compare a web poll, an online poll, to a telephone poll. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, that's that ends today's class in uh, <laughs> data science and opinion polling. I've had a lot of fun. I hope you had fun, too. We're so lucky to have Gen- Jennifer Deneen, who's available to us, program director of the graduate program in survey research uh, at the UConn Department of Public Policy. I'll be in the wheelhouse on Wednesday morning if we have that Q poll. I mean, I'm no Jennifer Deneen, but I will do my best uh, to try to pull this apart. I'll give you a little tip, though, something that she said earlier. If you're looking at the actual body of the poll instead of the uh, news article about the poll, drop down to that question about whether the person is capable of changing his or her mind. Might change my mind. That's a really interesting question. And if there's a big number for any of the candidates on the Wednesday before the Tuesday of the election... That may be something we're thinking about. Anyway, just a little tip. You know, the crosstabs are fun. All right. Uh, Jennifer Deneen, thank you so much. And thanks to Scott Breedy. What an excellent, excellent debut as an episode producer. 